What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm thrilled to have back with me today Dr. Juanita Hanau, who, as listeners may remember, is the Chief of OB Anesthesia at the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine. We did a great podcast a little while back and are now back for another. Today we're going to be talking about a really important and highly tested topic within OB Anesthesia and that is hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Now, before I welcome Dr. Hanau, I want to uh, remind listeners that we do have coming up, faster than I can believe, a live, in fact, the first ever live ACRAC podcast. It's going to be on April 24th here at Johns Hopkins. And if you are interested in coming, there won't be a charge, uh, but I would like to get a feel for people who are interested in coming in. So please, if you are interested in coming to that show, send an email to ACRAC at ACRAC.com, and we'll give you more details. All right, let's get on with the current show. Dr. Hanau, welcome back. Thank you, Jed. Thank you so much for having me back. All right. So we're going to talk, as I said, about hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Um, So why don't I start by asking you to just give us a list of what those are, and then we'll talk about them one by one. Sure. So the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, uh, we basically have four categories. So we have chronic hypertension, which is hypertension that is present before pregnancy, before 20 weeks of pregnancy, to be more precise. Um, And then we have gestational hypertension that presents after 20 weeks of pregnancy and is defined by a systolic pressure greater than 140 millimeters of mercury and a diastolic greater than 90 millimeters of mercury uh, on two occasions, four hours apart, without the presence of uh, proteinuria. And um, Juanita, let me just ask you, so is it if your systolic is greater than 140 or your diastolic is greater than 90, or do you have to have both, or how does that work? I think it's just one, just okay. one of them, yeah. And so either one will qualify. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then um, we also have chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia, so patients that had hypertension prior to pregnancy, but then they develop new onset proteinuria or other manifestations of preeclampsia. And last uh, but not least, we have preeclampsia, a eclampsia and HELP syndrome, which are like a categorized in the same spectrum. Um, and this is like the most high yield, the most um, likely to be tested in the boards. Right. And this comes up all the time on, as you say, in training exams, board exams. Um, I don't know this for a fact, but I would bet it's the most highly tested topic in OB anesthesia. Probably. Um, <laughs> all right. Great. So uh, you start. You you said that um, there are a few kind of before. Maybe we'll say preeclampsia for last, since that is definitely uh, going to be the one that's going to have the most detail. So chronic hypertension is kind of what you said and what it is, right? Is that this is a person who before they were pregnant, or I guess officially before twenty weeks of pregnancy, already had hypertension, and is that um, defined the same way? So this is a woman who is now pregnant, who is prior to twenty weeks, and has either a systolic greater than one forty or a diastolic greater than ninety. Yes, but they don't have proteinuria. Um, It's worth saying that both patients that have chronic hypertension and gestational hypertension have around one-fourth of a chance of developing preeclampsia. So these patients have to be monitored closely, um, you know, for new onset uh, proteinuria or other manifestations of preeclampsia. And when you say one-fourth, you mean a fourth of patients with with either uh, disorder, exactly, with either gotcha. chronic hypertension or gestational hypertension. Okay, so so that's quite high. So if you have gestational hypertension or chronic hypertension, you have a 25% chance during any given pregnancy of developing preeclampsia. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right, so obviously that's these are p- patients to keep a close eye on. Um, now, let me ask you this. What about a patient who is 
on antihypertensive medications and so does not have a blood pressure greater than 140 over 90. Um, but obviously they would count, I would imagine, right, as a chronic hypertensive? Yes, they will. Okay. So that's chronic hypertension, pretty self-explanatory. Um, gestational hypertension is the only difference, same thing. So greater than 140 over 90 on two separate occasions without proteinuria. It's just that it starts after 20 weeks of pregnancy? Correct. Okay. And we say that uh, kind of, you know, um, that additional piece about no proteinuria, which is not something we think of with, you know, regular, um, uh, you know, people who are not pregnant, we don't measure for proteinuria. I don't think I'm not a primary care doctor, but I think if you have high blood pressure, it's not with or without proteinuria. So that's something unique to pregnant patients. And why do we care about that? Why do we specify that these two, either chronic hypertension or gestational hypertension, is without proteinuria? Because, uh, well, we can talk about the definition of preeclampsia now. Uh, because proteinuria is one of the, you know, main diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia. Although that also changes. And so let's talk about it. Preeclampsia can be defined as um, uh, systolic pressure greater than 140 and a diastolic greater than 90. Again, in two different occasions, two, um, I'm sorry, four hours apart. And then you um, also include the presence of proteinuria, which is defined as greater or equal to 300 milligrams in 24-hour urine collection. But that's really not a practical test to perform. So they... Um, uh, came up with this other test that is the protein creating in ratio in urine. Uh, and if it's greater than 0.3, it's also diagnostic of preeclampsia. Or alternatively, a dipstick of more than 1 plus, uh, which is sometimes they, you know, something that can be used in, um, I don't know, like clinics and not very sophisticated places. Sure. Um, however, in 2017, if I'm not wrong, the ACOG changed the um, diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia, and they basically said that proteinuria does not to be present if you also have um, what, any of the following. You can have thrombocytopenia, which is a platelet count less than 100,000, renal insufficiency, which is diagnosed as a serum creatinine concentration greater than 1.1, or a creatinine that is doubling. Uh, if you have impaired liver function, which is um, defined as elevated liver transaminase twice uh, normal the concentration, pulmonary edema, or any of the uh, neurologic manifestations of preeclampsia, which can be persistent headache or visual abnormalities. So proteinuria is very important in the diagnosis of preeclampsia, but like I said, it does not have to be present if you have any of the severe uh, features of preeclampsia. Great. All right. I want to get back to preeclampsia in just one sec, but the final um, kind of category you mentioned was chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia. And I just want to be clear, I think, sure. tell me if I'm right, that that all that means is that you had preexisting hypertension and now are getting preeclampsia as opposed to someone who did not have preexisting hypertension and you're now getting preeclampsia, but the preeclampsia part is still the same, right? Exactly. And just that I think the reason the ACOG differentiates these patients is because their, you know, prognosis can be a little bit worse. They can have, you know, worse, uh, let's say worse manifestations of the, of the preeclampsia if it occurs. Okay. So when we talk about how common preeclampsia is, we already said that uh, quite a lot of 25% of people with preexisting hypertension or gestational hypertension will go on to develop it. But what about when we just look at it in general? How how common is it? If you're if you are a woman who is pr getting pregnant, you are not a hypertensive. You do not develop gestational hypertension, um, or even if we just talk about all comers of of any pregnant woman, what's the chances of developing preeclampsia? It's around seven to eight percent. Seven to eight percent of all the pregnancies in the United States will uh, develop preeclampsia. So it's pretty high. Okay. And do you have, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone has kind of, you know, or if it's easy to tease this number out, but for people, I mean, obviously of that 7, 8%, a large proportion are going to be people with either pre-existing hypertension or gestational hypertension. Do you have any idea how many people, like if you get past 20 weeks of pregnancy and you're not hypertensive, you weren't before, and you now have not developed gestational hypertension, uh, you must have a much lower risk. Yes. I honestly don't know the actual number, but I assume that yes. Okay. So 
The and my, I think I think my residents will not believe that it's only seven percent because, like, the majority of the patients that we have, you know, have preeclampsia. So it seems to be more common than that. But we also have like you know higher risk pregnancies in right. our institution. Yeah. Right. So the people who are high risk are coming to see academic centers like exactly. yours and mine, whereas in a maybe a private practice type setting or you know a home birth type setting, you're going to have healthy patients who hopefully at least healthy patients who are at lower risk. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's fairly common um, and it's something we want to be very careful of. We talked about the definition, um, which is all the kind of things you said. So traditionally, I remember learning when I was uh, in medical school, the requirement for the progenuria, but as you said, that changed. So you certainly can qualify with progenuria, but you can also qualify with these other things. So mm-hmm. you have to have the elevated blood pressure, right? You cannot have preeclampsia without a a blood pressure greater than 140 over 90 on some on a couple of occasions is that right yes that's correct the blood pressure is a must what changed was the presence of proteinuria okay so you have to have the blood pressure and then you can have either blood pressure plus the proteinuria as you said greater than equal to 300 milligrams of protein over 24 hours or these much more convenient ways to measure it so protein to creatinine ratio of greater than 0.3 or a dipstick greater than one plus so those are the protein qualifications and then you listed the uh, variety of things that you can also qualify you in, even if you don't have protein, like low platelets, elevated creatinine, or doubling creatinine, elevated LFTs, pulmonary edema, or neurologic changes. Exactly, and those are known as like severe features. Okay, so and when you say so, it used to be, and I don't know if this is true anymore, but again, when I was learning about this as a medical student, there was preeclampsia and then severe preeclampsia. Is that still the nomenclature, or has that changed? No, that changed. And the the ACOG changed this definition basically because they don't want people to think that a patient diagnosed with mild preeclampsia is a patient that cannot, you know, become severe. So basically this is a multisystemic disease that can progress very quickly and very unpredictable. So by changing the definition, they are basically um, trying to make physicians more aware of like the severity of the disease. Okay. So if you have preeclampsia, Let's say you have an elevated blood pressure and you meet the protein criteria, but you don't have any of those things that you just said were called severe features. Mm-hmm. And then you develop some of those things, those severe features. Does your definition change? Do you now have preeclampsia with severe features or, or That's no? correct. That's correct. So the definition changed from preeclampsia with severe features or preeclampsia without severe features. Okay. But by doing that, you don't, you're not like you know, putting the patient on a spectrum of mild disease, you're just, you're still considering preeclampsia without severe features as a severe disease, if that, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, this strikes me as similar to the change in the sepsis uh, nomenclature where we used to have sepsis yeah. and severe sepsis, and we got rid of severe sepsis because we didn't want anyone thinking that sepsis wasn't severe. Correct. It's very similar to that. That's a great example. Okay. So you can have preeclampsia with or without severe features. Is there, uh, there used to also be, you know, to qualify you back when they used to have severe preeclampsia, you could kind of cross another protein ratio. Does that still uh, happen? Like enough protein now counts as a severe feature or no? No, no. The proteinuria is just like the 300 milligrams in 24 hour collection or the creatinine, the protein in creatinine radio more than 0.3. Okay. It's, it's enough to make the diagnosis. Great. All right. So, uh, the, we talked about the definition, so you have to meet those criteria and that gets you the diagnosis. What puts, we, we talked about a major risk factor, which is either pre-existing hypertension or gestational hypertension. Are there other risk factors that people should know about? Yes, there are plenty actually. Um, before we jump into that, I, I do want to make another differentiation that, um, in preeclampsia, preeclampsia can be early onset or preeclampsia can be late onset. So preeclampsia that is early onset is the one that is present before 34 weeks. And this one has a very high genetic component. So that may be one of the risk factors that we're uh, about to talk about. Now, preeclampsia that occurs late during pregnancy, meaning more than 34 weeks after 34 weeks, it has a different side, a different spectrum of risk factors. So for this type of preeclampsia, the one that occurs late, patients that are obese, uh, that have chronic hypertension, that have diabetes, that have chronic immune disease, are at high risk of developing preeclampsia. Early onset preeclampsia, like I mentioned before, has a very strong genetic component. So if you, somebody in your family had a history of preeclampsia, or if you had preeclampsia on a previous pregnancy, you have a higher risk of developing it. Okay. So of all 
patients who get preeclampsia, how many, you know, what percent are early versus late? Around only 20% of the patients are early. Okay. So that leaves 80% of the patients that are, you know, present later. Okay. So very much more common to present after 34 weeks. Correct. And then it can present, including postpartum, right? So how far postpartum can you still get preeclampsia? So around eight weeks postpartum, you can also be diagnosed with preeclampsia. And that's actually very important that you mentioned this because a lot of people tend to be, and this was like also something that um, we used to believe in the past, that the delivery of the baby and the delivery of the placenta was an absolute cure. Uh, However, there are patients that manifest with preeclampsia for the first time postpartum. So for example, I always tell my residents when they go and evaluate a patient with a postpartum headache, Always assume that the patient uh, don't all, I'm sorry don't always assume that the patient is having a postural puncture headache. Think about other causes of headache because women in general are more prone to headaches. Um, and always, always when you go see a patient with a headache, make sure that you're looking um, at the patient's last blood pressures because that can be a manifestation of postpartum preeclampsia. Okay. And how common is that? I mean, is it, I, I would imagine, but I don't know this for sure, that it's much more common to develop preeclampsia between 34 and 40 weeks than it is to get it postpartum. Yeah. Is it's it, only, is, a, it's only around 5% of the patients that are diagnosed postpartum. Okay. So can, and that's not nothing. So, you know, certainly, as you said, really important for practitioners to keep that in mind. Okay. Yes. So early, which is less common before 34 weeks, late, which is the most common, uh, after 34 weeks, and then postpartum, which is uh, significantly less common, but still can happen. And as you said, the early is really much more genetically related. The late is going to be related to some of those other risk factors, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, chronic kidney disease. Mm -hmm. And and other risk factors that are important to mention at advanced maternal age, teenage pregnancies, uh, patients with autoimmune disorders like uh, lupus or antiphospholipid syndrome, Patients that have multiple gestations, let's say twins or triplets, uh, and patients that um, um, did IVF, uh, in vitro fertility, for uh, you know to get pregnant. Oh, interesting. So I had I knew about all of those except I had not heard about IVF as a risk factor. Uh, do we have any idea why that uh, why that's a risk factor? Yes. So there's um uh, one of the, the you know the theories of the pathogenesis of preeclampsia involves an immunologic response, um, you know, that the mother kind of like creates an immunologic response to the placenta. And so because IBF is not like a natural way of getting pregnant, uh, it is believed that the immunologic response is stronger in this kind of patients. Hmm, Interesting. Okay. And I assume they've looked at this independently from the fact that IVF is probably more commonly producing multiple gestations, because that would be a confounder, obviously. If you just looked at all IVF without controlling for number of gestations, uh, mm-hmm. you, it would look like it was a risk factor because you're more likely to have, you know, two or three, um, you know, twins or triplets when you have IVF than you do when you just have a normal pregnancy. Correct. And there's another aspect of this now that I remember. Um, Sometimes a lot of people that do IVF, uh, like for example, same-sex couples, they use sperm donor. And so there's an interesting theory that um, the father component also plays a role in the development of preeclampsia. And Mm -hmm. women that are like frequently exposed to their um, partner's uh, semen, uh, they have a less likelihood of developing preeclampsia. So by using donor semen, sometimes you are um, at increased risk. Interesting. So that mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense too as to why that would be a risk factor. Um, okay. So great. We've talked about risk factors. And then so we've looked at uh, one potential um, or a couple of different kind of uh, pathophysiologic processes. So one is related to genetics. One is potentially related to an immunologic response. Uh, tell me a little more. What do we know about the pathophysiology of uh, preeclampsia? Okay, so the pathophysiology of preeclampsia is believed to start in the placenta. And basically what happens is that there's impaired remodeling of the spiral arteries, which are the spiral arteries are the end branches of the uterine arteries that provide the blood supply to the placenta. So normally in a normal pregnancy, there has to be like this invasion of the myometrium by the spiral arteries 
But um, this involves a lot of mediators, right? So the arteries basically have to dilate and invade the myometrium. So there's like more, um, uh, there's less resistance and there's more availability of delivering nutrients to the baby. And these arteries that uh, undergo this remodeling are actually unresponsive to vasoactive stimulus. So they remain dilated. They remain open so you can deliver nutrients to that fetus that is growing, if that makes sense. During placampsia, this remodeling does not occur uh, normally. Uh, so the arteries, the spiral arteries, remain small and constricted, and they're hyper-responsive to vasoactive stimuli. So they don't deliver enough nutrients to the, to the fetus. Um, and then um, there's decreased placental perfusion, there's uh, small placental infarcts, overall less blood supply to the fetus, so there's increased risk of IUGR. And um, because um, this can, you know, this, the fetus is going to continue to grow, this can worsen as the pregnancy progresses. Another important component of the pathophysiology of the disease is that when all this remodeling is not occurring, there's also a release of antiangiogenic factors into the maternal circulation. And so this is why we consider preeclampsia a widespread endothelial dysfunction. Uh, and so that's when the patients start developing hypertension and proteinuria and the other manifestations of preeclampsia. Because at this point, we have endothelial dysfunction all over uh, the body, not just in the placenta. Interesting. So, yeah, I I kind of, in a in a much less sophisticated understanding, have conceptualized it in my head of essentially these spiral arteries didn't form and didn't penetrate the way they were supposed to. There's not enough nutrients, blood being delivered to the baby, and so the uh, the fetus needs more, and so somehow triggers essentially, you know, the uh, mother's blood pressure to go up to try to deliver more. Does that is that is there something coming from the fetus? Is that right that the fetus is somehow, or I guess the fetus or the placenta is somehow, you know, releasing a, a some sort of tropic factor or some sort of signaling molecule that is creating elevated blood pressure in an attempt to get more delivery? Yes, it is. It, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the fetus itself. It's more like the placenta and this whole, you know, failure to remodel triggers like this cascade of, you know, release of all these factors into the maternal circulation that cause increased high blood pressure, that cause impaired, um, you know, renal function, cerebral abnormalities, all these things. Okay. Now, I, I should have asked you about this before, but at what point does HELP syndrome come into this? Do we think of HELP as, as kind of, and, and HELP, I should say, stands for, uh, I believe, hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. So those are, I mean, you mentioned the low platelets is one of the severe features. You mentioned the elevated liver enzymes is one of the severe features. Um, we didn't mention hemolysis, but is that... HELP syndrome, kind of a thought to be a further progression of preeclampsia, kind of on the, just the more severe spectrum, or is it its own thing? It's kind of like its own disease. Yeah. However, it is usually, you know, included in the spectrum of preeclamptic disorders. Preeclampsia, cancer, and, and HELP syndrome are usually included in the same category, but HELP syndrome is like a different disorder on its okay. own. Mm -hmm. Are you more at risk for HELP syndrome if you uh, have preeclampsia? Yes, you are. Okay. I don't know so, the exact uh, amount of risk, but yes, you are at higher risk. Okay. And then I also remember learning about uh, acute fatty liver of pregnancy as a very bad thing. Um, is that related to either preeclampsia or HELP syndrome? That can occur with or without um, both disorders. But yes, that is a very catastrophic disorder. Um, but it sometimes occurs in people that have no preeclampsia or no HELP syndrome. Okay, interesting. All right, so we have um, this pathophysiology that you talked about, and is, are we pretty? I mean, this has all kind of been elucidated, I think, relatively recently. We haven't known about a lot of this um, kind of what preeclampsia actually is for very long. I think is this? Are we pretty confident now? We think that this kind of failure of the spiral arteries to penetrate the myometrium correctly—that is kind of what generally accepted as the cause. Yes, that's what triggers the whole, you know, uh, 
disease, but there's there's a lot more that we don't know about the pathophysiology of preeclampsia. And this is an area of extensive research right now because this is the area that we have to know very well so we can try to prevent the disease, right? So for example, right now, one of the um, most important preventive measures that we're starting to use is the use of aspirin. Um, so the reason why we use aspirin is because in preeclampsia, there's an increase in tranexamic acid um, relative to, I'm sorry, thromboxane A2 relative to prostacycline. So if you remember, thromboxane A2 is a potent vasoconstrictor, whereas prostacycline is a potent vasodilator. And so when we give patients aspirin, we inhibit the thromboxane A2 and we can help reduce the risk of preeclampsia. So there's a lot of other mediators, not just thromboxane A2. There's a lot of other mediators that are being researched right now to try to, you know, pre- you know prevent the development of preeclampsia. Interesting. So who gets aspirin? Is it people who are at high risk because of pre-existing hypertension or gestational hypertension? Or, you know, how, how do we decide who gets so- aspirin as a prevention? All of the patients that we discussed as risk factors like advanced maternal age, teenage pregnancies, obese patients, patients with diabetes, um, they all are getting aspirin starting at 16 weeks. Um, Interesting. Mm-hmm. How, what dose of aspirin? A baby or a full dose? It's baby aspirin, 81 milligrams of aspirin daily. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and they started at, you said, what, how many weeks? 16. 16 ideally, weeks. The, ideally, it should be started very early before the 20 week you know, mark. And then they continue it until delivery or even up in, do they continue it for that eight weeks postpartum or how far do they go? They do. They continue it uh, postpartum as well. Okay. Interesting. So aspirin, and you explained the mechanism there with the thromboxane A2, kind of trying to get that that prostacycline versus thromboxane A2 back into a better balance. Are there other preventative measures? You said there's others being looked at. Anything that we're actually doing? No, there wasn't... um... Another study that tried to um, study the use of vitamin C in the prevention of preeclampsia because vitamin C is a, an antioxidant. And um, there were some uh, studies that believed that one of the mechanisms of developing of preeclampsia was an increase in oxygen reactive species, secondary to those, all these vasoconstriction and kind of ischemia. So they were trying to prevent the development of severe preeclampsia with uh, high doses of vitamin C, but unfortunately the studies were not very promising and didn't show great results. And we unfortunately don't have any other preventive measurements right now. But like I said, this is an area that is being extensively researched. Okay. Um, So let me ask you this. I mean, this may seem like a really obvious basic question, but you know, why is preeclampsia bad? And what I mean is there are non-pregnant people walking around with blood pressures over 140 or diastolics over 90 all the time. I mean, you know, that's obviously it's very, hypertension is very common. Poorly treated hypertension is very common. And there are, you know, long-term consequences to this. But, you know, from the, on a day-to-day basis, these people are, are probably just fine. What is it about having this elevated blood pressure, maybe with some of these, you know, features that's bad. Now, the ultimate kind of move to eclampsia is seizures, right? So is it that it? Is it that preeclampsia is bad because you might end up with seizures? Or are, in and of itself, is there is there a reason that having that elevated blood pressure with some proteinuria or other symptoms, even without seizures, is bad? Yes. Well, preeclampsia is bad, first of all, because you don't have just the mother, right? You have a fetus there. And like we mentioned earlier, if you don't have enough placental perfusion, that fetus is not going to grow. And if a fetus is not growing properly, uh, you can have, you know, IUGR, you can have prematurity, and you can have um, even intrauterine fetal demises. So that's the main reason. And because we also mentioned that preeclampsia, it's actually a multisystemic disease with um, endothelial damage. These patients can develop pulmonary edema, they can develop um, renal insufficiency, and then they can develop um, DIC. And ultimately, yes, they can develop eclampsia or strokes. Hemorrhagic strokes is actually um, the highest 
risk of mortality associated with preeclampsia. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, I think the key things you pointed out there are obviously the potential detrimental effects to the fetus that is obviously still developing during this time. And you mentioned IUGR's intrauterine growth restriction or even intrauterine fetal demise. So these, you know, babies are at a higher risk of, uh, these fetuses are at a higher risk of death. Um, so, you know, very, very, a uh, lot of downsides associated with preeclampsia. Um, okay. So when you have a patient, we talked about prevention. Now let's say you have a patient who is, um, who has these disorders. So let's start with the kind of basic ones. Let's say you've got a patient who comes in to labor and delivery uh, in labor, and they have known either chronic or gestational hypertension without preeclampsia. What are you doing um, to treat them? And then after that, we'll talk about what you're doing to manage patients with with active preeclampsia. So the patient who's just hypertensive, um, what are you doing? You're controlling their blood pressure, I assume. Yes. So um, obviously medications to control blood pressure. Medications that are commonly used during pregnancy are labetalol, uh, hydralazine, and sometimes nifedipine. But the first line are labetalol and hydralazine. And obviously these patients need to be monitored. Um, for early detection of worsening symptoms, and also the fetus needs to be monitored uh, just to make sure that, you know, you have reassuring heart rate patterns and all these things. Great. So obviously people should follow their institutional protocols, but just to give a general idea, let's say you have a patient come in, in labor, early labor, and the blood pressure is 160 over 100. What's your first dose going to be and of what? Um, usually obstetricians usually start with labetalol, um, and they usually start, they, they do incremental doses. So patients usually start with like 10 milligrams of labetalol and they start, um, increasing that dose progressively based on the patient's response. Okay. And is, let's say a patient is on... Antihypertensives, uh, antihypertensives at home, they haven't taken them. Um, do you have them take that or you just put an IV in and start doing IV management? If the blood pressure is 160 over 100, like you said, they will just put an IV and start managing it okay. at that Cause, point. Because that's pretty, it's pretty high. You want to get that under control as, as fast as possible. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Okay. So for these patients, again, no, sim no signs of preeclampsia, just the blood pressure, do they get magnesium? Well, the patient that you, the, that particular example with a blood pressure 160 over 100, it's preeclampsia, correct? Uh, but no, they don't, they don't always get magnesium if it's just blood pressures. Wait, sorry, why that patient, even with no proteinuria and no other severe features, just having that higher blood pressure qualifies them as preeclampsia? 160 over 100? Yes, that's, that's very high. Okay. So that's a severe, yeah, that's a severe feature. That's a very high blood pressure. Gotcha. So we hadn't talked about that. So tell me, what's the cutoff of blood pressure where it, it now counts as preeclampsia even without proteinuria? More than 160 and more than 110. 60, more than 160, one, I'm sorry, more than 160 systolic and more than 110 diastolic. Gotcha. Okay. So that is another way to qualify for preeclampsia is to just have a high enough blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great. So, uh, so let's say I, let me change my, my patient then and say 150 over, uh, you know, 95. So the patient who's 150 over 95 will get managed for blood pressure, but no, no magnesium. No, no magnesium. Okay. Now let's turn our attention to patients who have the diagnosis of preeclampsia. So we could go back to my first example, a patient whose blood pressure <laughs> is, let's say 165 over, um, you know, 115. So that patient now has preeclampsia by virtue of having a severe enough blood pressure. Uh, they're obviously going to get antihypertensives. Are they going to get magnesium? Yes, they will get magnesium for seizure prophylaxis. And what is the, um, obviously it's IV, and is there a, a common dose? Do you start low and titrate up? How does that work? So patients usually get a bolus of like two to four grams, and then they start getting an infusion. Um, and then they will get um, blood tests to measure a magnesium level. So usually therapeutic levels are around, you know, six to seven milligrams per deciliter. Um, and, you know, patients will continue to be monitored for levels and for signs of toxicity. 
and that way the infusion can be titrated. Okay. And so I, I'm definitely aware that commonly tested um, uh, is the side effects of magnesium and the kind of way that those present. So tell me about those. What do you look for? Um, and I guess let me back up and say, the reason we're giving, pre, uh, mag, that we're giving these preeclamptics magnesium is to prevent seizures. Is that the main reason? Yes, that is the main reason. Magnesium attenuates the vascular response to pressure substance and dilates the vascular beds in the brain. And so that uh, kind of is believed to be the mechanism behind using magnesium. Okay. Uh, it's very important to know that it's not an antihypertensive. Right. And is there some, uh, I have this vague memory of magnesium being thought to also have some kind of neuroprotective effects for the fetus. Is that true? Yeah, that is true for premature fetuses. Yes, that is true. Okay. That, but that's more in the premature fetus. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what, tell me about the side effects of magnesium and, and how they present. So it also depends on the, on the magnesium level. Um, but basically, uh, when patients are actually therapeutic, uh, they're going to feel flushed. They're going to feel warm. Some of them are going to complain of nausea. Uh, they're going to be a little bit sedated. Uh, as the levels progress, um, patients are going to lose their deep tendon reflexes. That's very important. Uh, as the level keep progressing, patients are going to present with arrhythmias. The most important arrhythmias are going to be prolonged PR, widen QRS, heart blocks. And then if we keep going with the infusion, the patients can actually have a respiratory depression and a systole. Okay. So I think that order is frequently, you know, tested so that the first things are the loss of the deep tendon reflexes, then uh, changes on the EKG, respiratory depression, and finally, you know, cardiac arrest. Um, do we? Do you think people need to know the levels at which that is expected to happen? They do. That's a highly tested question, and I encourage all the residents to review that. Yes. Okay. And do we? Is that? A, is there a general? Uh, I have this feeling like around five to ten is uh, where you start to lose the deep tendon reflexes. Maybe like ten to fifteen, you can see EKG changes and start to get some respiratory depression. Fifteen to twenty, more significant respiratory depression and. And potentially cardiac arrest is above, is around there or higher? Do, is that am I right or am I completely making this up? No, you're correct. Around fifteen to twenty is respiratory depression and asystole. Uh, loss of deep tendon reflexes can occur, you know, at levels as low as seven, but usually around nine to twelve. Okay, great. All right, so mm-hmm. that is important to know as well. So now let's say you have a preeclamptic. Um, in labor or even even just not in labor, but, you know, near term. Um, so let me ask you about that. If they're not in labor, they come in for a routine check, they have the elevated blood pressure, and plus, you know, they've got maybe some severe features. Uh, they are going to be induced if they're near term. Is that right? Yeah, most likely they will be induced. And is it... Um, you know, is they're- that dependent on the severe feature? So let's say somebody comes in, they're 37 weeks, and they have a blood pressure of 145 over 95. Um, are they going to be induced or kind of watched closely or, you know, versus, and I mean that as compared to somebody who comes in at, you know, 180 over 120. Yeah, so there are certain uh, characteristics that... Um- Certain patients that are not candidates for expected management, so we can talk about those. Those are patients that have eclampsia. Obviously, that's an indication for delivery, not necessarily C-section, but a delivery. Patients with pulmonary edema, patients with DIC, patients with renal insufficiency, patients that have placental abruption, or if there's any abnormal fetal testing, um, those patients need to be delivered immediately, regardless of the gestational age. In other patients that do not have this uh, serious conditions, expectant management can be uh, performed. So these patients need to be admitted and monitored closely, uh, but not necessarily need to be delivered right away. Okay. If that makes sense. Yep. So someone with even just preeclampsia without any severe features is still going to get admitted. So these patients don't go home? It's not likely that they go home. They have to be monitored for development of severe features because, like I said, they can happen very unpredictably. Mm -hmm. And the fetus needs to be monitored. 
And is that true also for the people with early? So like someone with 32 weeks who develops preeclampsia um, or is it different when it's that early? No, it's true for everybody. Um, and if the patients have severe blood pressures, you know, these pressures need to be managed. The features need to be monitored and uh, the patient need to be monitored for the development of severe features. If the patient develops severe features that do not resolve, then uh, indication for delivery is granted at this point. Okay. And is there anything that is a, a, obviously fetal um, instability is always a, a potential indication for stat C-section? Is there, in the absence of that, with a with a stable fetus, is there any feature uh, that would make you take a pregnant woman to stat C-section as opposed to induction? Um, and I mean, I'm imagining a patient in uh, who is having an eclamptic seizure. Uh, does, does that patient get taken to C-section or potentially still proceed with so, induction? Not necessarily. Eclampsia is an indication for delivery, but not necessarily for uh, C-section. So when you have a patient that has an eclamptic seizure, first you have to make sure that you know you control the seizures uh, by admin- administering benzodiazepines and that you protect the patient's airway. Um, so, and obviously you're going to be monitoring the fetus at this point. If the fetus is still... Um, you know, has reassuring fetal heart rate patterns, then you can continue to observe the patient, but this patient needs to be delivered. So whether they induce the patient or they decide to proceed with a C-section, that patient needs to be delivered. That's an indication for delivery, not necessarily cesarean section. Okay. And then how does your anesthetic management change for a patient with preeclampsia in terms of, do they still get a labor epidural if they're being induced um, or if they're in labor? Uh, and then if they do go to C-section, neuraxial versus GA. Okay, so um, it's very important to communicate with the obstetricians regarding the mode of delivery. If a patient is going to be delivered vaginally, if they consider that it's okay to induce that patient, early administration of uh, neuraxial analgesia is recommended, either a continuous epidural, a combined combined spinal epidural, a dural puncture epidural. All of these techniques are appropriate. Um, it's recommended to place a catheter early uh, because two things. You can have patients that are having declining platelets, so you want to place it early before the platelets continue to drop. And by treating the pain, you can also decrease the circulating catecholamines that the patient has associated with the excruciating pain, right? And by doing that, you help decrease the blood pressure and improve the uteroplacental perfusion. That makes sense. So early epidural, um, control the pain, have it in place before the platelets get low and you wouldn't want to put it in, um, et cetera. All right. And Mm -hmm. so do you ever run into a situation where, you know, let's say you get the epidural in and then the preeclampsia gets worse and the platelets, you know, get low, you then can leave it in, but you you might have to wait to take it out, right? Because you got to, you don't want to take it out when platelets are too low. Correct. Pulling the epidural catheter also increases the risk for epidural hematoma formation. So you have to be careful at this stage as well. Check platelets and, uh, you know, proceed accordingly. Okay. And how about when you think about the airway, if you are going to do, you know, how do you decide between neuraxial anesthesia or general anesthesia for a C-section? So for a C-section, um, neuraxial anesthesia is preferred uh, because, like you mentioned, general anesthesia, you have to you know, consider that these patients are going to be very difficult airways. Uh, first of all, pregnancy itself uh, um, causes um, difficult airway, right? These patients have edema, they have oral oropharynx, friability of all the vessels in the oropharynx and the nasopharynx. So the airways are, you know, difficult per se. But if you add patients that are preclamptic, that are having proteinuria, they're going to be more edematous. So you don't want to, you know, you don't want to have to deal with a difficult airway. Um, So neuraxial techniques are preferred. And um, in this case, you can do, again, spinal, single shot spinals, or you can do continuous epidurals. Now, if you do have to do general anesthesia, because let's say you have a patient that is constant with a placental abruption, then you, you just have to anticipate for a difficult airway. 
uh, have, you know, smaller size endotracheal tubes, video laryngoscopes, a fiber optic available. And you also have to consider that um, laryngoscopy causes a sympathetic response and you can have a patient actually stroke during this um during this moment. So you have to do things to prevent that hypertensive response to laryngoscopy. So you right. can consider asmol, asmol bolus of remifentanil is recommended in these patients as well. Um, you know, if the blood pressure is extremely high, you can either consider um, a small um, bolus of nitroglycerin, everything that you can do to prevent that hypertensive response. Okay. Great. So that's really important. And to just recognize, I think, as you said, that these airway, these patients' airways are even more difficult, the preeclamptics, than just a traditional pregnant patient. And, and those we should be treating, you know, as potential difficult airways in and of themselves. So what, when, if a patient does have a, a, an eclamptic seizure, you said you're, um, obviously you're going to need to make sure that you're safe from a controlling the airway standpoint, and then obviously treat the seizure, uh, not necessarily with your traditional seizure medications, though it sounds like benzodiazepines are your go-to first. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Benzodiazepines can be administered safely to these patients to terminate a seizure. And if that doesn't work, is there a next kind of go-to? So you can also give like a bolus of magnesium sulfate at this point, like around two grams of magnesium. If that doesn't help, then you have to consider uh, something like propofol. And then, you know, at that point, you have to intubate your patient. Right. Okay. Um, All right. So I think that was a great summary. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you think we should? Um, Let me think. No, I think basically, uh, you know, just remind residents that preeclampsia is a progressive disease, that it can present postpartum, uh, that it should not be taken lightly. And just, um, you know, keep, um, stay tuned because there's a lot of research going on on the pathophysiology of disease that will like show us some light into preventive measurements. Great. Well, that'll be really interesting. I mean, I think so much has come to light even in the past five to 10 years. And as you say, I think only more is to come. So that will be very exciting. Um, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something to recommend to the audience, Juanita? Yes. Uh, this time I want to recommend a book. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant. Uh, this book will actually be a film in 2021 directed by Mar- Martin Scorsese and starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. It's a very interesting nonfiction book that investigated a series of murders that took place in the Osage County in Oklahoma in the 1920s. And uh, it also tells the story of how the FBI was born. It's fascinating because although it's a nonfiction book, the characters almost seem fiction. Uh, fictional. So there are Texas Rangers, there are robbers, there are private investigators, gangs, you name it. So it's definitely a page turner and it's very interesting from a history perspective too. So I, I highly recommend it. Very cool. And we will put a link to that in the show notes um, and I will check it out myself. Um, my recommendation is um, for a new podcast called Medical Murmurs by a, an ER physician named Paris Lovett. Um, And his goal is to, he's just launched this and he's released, I think, three or four different interview podcasts. And what he does is he interviews folks from different fields. So he actually, in full disclosure, he did interview me. And and so my my episode is up there um, as an anesthesiologist. Uh, But he also has one with a trauma surgeon, one with an ENT surgeon. Um, and there may be some more. And what he does is he talks to them kind of just about their career. And he's a, he does a very nice job to kind of explore how they chose their career, what their day is like in that career. So I think this is something that would be really interesting, definitely for medical students. In fact, he does have a separate, he kind of makes a cut for medical students with quest, more specific questions about kind of how they chose the career. And then a more general cut that's a little longer that just has a lot of really interesting discussion. And so uh, I think it'd be great for medical students, but really also for the lay public or anyone who's interested in kind of hearing stories from folks doing different branches of medicine than what some of the others of us may be doing. So anyway, Paris Lovett's Medical Murmurs, worth checking out. All right, Juanita, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jed, for having me again. It was a pleasure. 
All right. Fantastic. I love that we're beefing up our OB content, and uh, Dr. Hanau does a fantastic job with it. I always learn a ton, as I'm sure you do. Let us know what you think. You can leave a comment on the website. That's com, and others can see that and learn from what you have to say as well. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. We're at ACRAC Podcast, and I'm at Jay Walpaw. And, of course, there's also a Facebook group you are welcome to join. If you are a fan of the show and you haven't already or haven't for a while, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Huge thank you, as always, to our ACRAC intern, Kimia Cash Cooley, and, of course, to Dr. Brian Park and to April Liu. They're doing a fantastic job putting together outlines for some of the episodes. Our ACRAC original music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. Thank you so much to Dennis for the original music. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG Podcast and Dr. Juanita Hanau, I'm Jed Wolfaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.